Hello, and welcome to the Nashville Sounding Board, the new podcast dedicated to discussing social and political issues in the Nashville community. I'm your host, Benjamin Eagles. Last episode, we heard from Councilman Jeremy Elrod, a sponsor of the Let's Move Nashville Transit Plan. In this episode, we'll be hearing from David Fox. David Fox was the runner-up in the 2015 mayoral election and formerly served as chair of the school board. One quick note, David and I sat down for this interview prior to Mayor Barry's resignation. Due to her subsequent resignation, his comments regarding former Mayor Barry have been condensed. So thank you so much for being the second guest in a four-part series about the transit plan leading up to the historic vote on May 1st. Thank you, Ben. I'm looking forward to our conversation. And just a few fun rapid-fire questions for you to get things started. Uh, What's the first news site that you check in the morning? Uh, I always check uh, the Tennessean and my Google News search. I have it set so it pulls from six or eight different categories, and I can kind of cover what I need with that in about 10 minutes. There you go. And uh, favorite local coffee shop? end up going to Dose, which is the closest coffee shop, so I do that a good bit. And uh, what book are you currently reading? Now, I've got a stack of books I haven't been reading. I'm trying to think of the most interesting one. I've got a, uh, a Thomas Jefferson profile is sitting on my desk and so far unread. So I've got a lot of reading ahead of me. Okay. And are you a wine guy or a beer drinker? I prefer beer, but my cardiologist prefers wine. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I try to have a little wine every now and then. And how often do you ride the bus? Uh, very infrequently. I'll sometimes downtown take the green circuit. My, my family will periodically take the bus a couple blocks away on West End Avenue when they want to go downtown to see the Frist. They'll hop on the bus and see that. Gotcha. So to get things started, what parts of the Let's Move Nashville plan do you like and what parts do you not like? Well, there's very little that I do like, uh, but I should preface it by saying I'm friends with a lot of people who worked on the plan. And Everybody who worked on it are good, you know, civic-minded people who have contributed their time to put forward a good plan. And so I genuinely appreciate their effort. You know, but the way the process works is come together with a plan and the population votes on whether this is the right thing for us or not. Uh, having reviewed it, the only parts that I find attractive really have to do with the bus service. Ultimately, I've come out strongly in opposed to light rail plan as well as the tunnel plan which is, of course, the vast majority of the spending. Okay. And in an interview with the Tennessean, you called the plan a boondoggle, a colossal mistake, and borderline catastrophic. It's pretty strong language. So why, after largely being off the radar since the 2015 election, have you come out so strongly now? Right. Well, I tried to give the mayor a lot of breathing room after the election. You know, we had a fair election. She ran a good campaign and won. And so I felt like I needed just to get out of the way, and I, I stayed out of the way. But the size of the spending on this plan, uh, the amount of debt we'll incur, and the overall ineffectiveness of it just left me concluding that, well, if I'm going to continue to live in Nashville and be at all engaged, I ought to express my opinion. And so I ended up digging into it and studying it and read the document when it came out, talked to a lot of people. And of course, this is a topic that I've been thinking about for years, you know, back, you know, well before the the mayoral campaign. And so I had some opinions going into it. Um, I didn't really expect that we would be presented with one option, kind of a binary choice, yes or no, on something that would be so, I think, ridiculously expensive and have such a limited effect on traffic, improving traffic and congestion. Um, You know, we have a lot of 
you know, challenges in Nashville. This is a boom period for us. Things are great. People are moving here. I don't think Nashville's ever been better than it is right now, but you'd have to be blind to see that we don't have some major problems. We have a school system that's desperately underperforming. We have a scourge of homicides around the city. You have like three, more than twice the number of homicides this year than we had three years ago. We have affordable housing problems. We have problems that really affect people that I think are more critical than this that are going to require capital. And if we spend all of our you know, operating income and then incur debt to pay for an extraordinarily expensive transit plan that's really not going to be that helpful in my view, I think we're badly misallocating capital and going to hurt people who live here. Does it matter to you that the funding stream for this, um, the debt portion, is revenue bonds rather than uh, GO bonds. It it I, I, it's it's a slight improvement, I guess. We have, I think about three billion in GOs, if I'm not mistaken. Um, general obligation bonds. Yeah, this will be a uh, you know structured more as a revenue bond, but ultimately, if the plan is unsuccessful, I think the liability will end up flowing to the to operating the operating revenue of the city. If in a worst case scenario, you know, if you look at uh, you look at transit plans around the country. None of them, of course, are cash flow positive, and I don't think they necessarily – that should be the expectation. You know, I, I think there are reasons to understand that they'll operate at, at a loss. That's They all do. I think Tokyo, arguably around the world, is the only one that might be considered kind of cash flow neutral. The two uh, competing private companies that do the rail there, I think, in Tokyo. Oh, in, in Tokyo. Right. And that's that's another issue here is that, you know, among the alternatives we never think about is – you know, Nashville had private suppliers of bus service here, as did all, all metro cities did. It was a privately run operation organized uh, under the municipal government. And then in the late 60s, there were, you know, financial, federal financial incentives and changes that caused metropolitan areas like ours to shift. And so by 1973, we developed the MTA and the private sector was taken completely out of it. Uh, so I think, you know, there are a lot of alternatives, but just back to your original question, um, yeah, it's it's a mild improvement that they're revenue bonds rather than um, general obligations bonds. But again, in the worst case scenario, I think that the result is largely the same, that taxpayers are at risk. So you mentioned that you were surprised that voters are only being presented with the one plan. Um, why did opponents of this proposal, such as yourself, not work to get an alternative plan on the ballot? Because everyone has known transit was a key piece of Mayor Barry's agenda. And if you have another plan in mind, why didn't you work to get it on the ballot? After all, it would have only taken about 4,000 signatures to get on the ballot. That's based on 10% of the voters in the August 2016 election. I attended some of, just personally, I attended some of the meetings and expressed my opinions that I, how I prefer things to roll out here, which is mostly a bus service. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if you look at the turnout at these meetings over the last few years, you know, you get civic-minded people who are very interested in it, but yeah, it's not a random group, of course. And again, this is not the fault of anybody. But if you know, I'm I'm for an improved bus service. We have a lot of people who are enthralled by having light rail program here, and they're very passionate about it. And I think if you're going to have you know community meetings on a new transportation program, the people who are going to turn out are those who want the kind of the sexy new toy, not those of us who think, well, great, let's improve our bus service. And again, that's not the fault of anybody. It's just how it worked out. Um, you know, as far as the process, I don't really know how the process was set up. I don't know how they decided we would have one option. I don't, I don't, I guess that was the mayor's office who said, okay, at the end of this process, we're going to give you one choice and it's binary. That's not how I would have done it necessarily, but that's how they did it. And it's, um, I don't feel responsible for that at all. I think it's my responsibility as an informed citizen 
to make sure we don't make a huge mistake. And hope enough other people do so we can get this thing out of the way and then install the right uh, transportation approach that we need. Did you give any thought or had you heard people consider going the petition route to get an alternative plan on a ballot? No, um, uh, no, I didn't. Okay. So um, on your campaign, you had some fun commercials. You had the Lincoln McConaughey spoof, uh, the Fox suit with the with ESPN. Uh, but you had an ad about transit, about not wanting to become the next Atlanta. I believe a woman got out of her car in Atlanta traffic and held up a series of signs imploring Nashville to not make the same mistakes that Atlanta did and to protect our, our way of life. What did you mean with that ad and what sort of transit plan did you have in mind during your campaign? Sure. Um, well, first, I'm, I'm very pro-transit. And most people I speak with, regardless of their view on this proposal, consider themselves pro-transit because I think everyone recognizes, anyone who's been here for any length of time, and I've been here pretty much all my life, recognize the status quo is not working too well and it's going to be working a lot worse in years to come. It's just the plan that's been put forward is not to my liking. Um, what I, back in the campaign days, um, I remember back in the 80s, and early 90s, uh, people would talk about what was going on in Atlanta. It was a place we would visit all the time. And then it got more and more difficult. It became more crowded. And the transportation was the main issue uh, where it's gotten very difficult to get there. And people would and say in Nashville, let's don't become the next Atlanta. It was kind of a recurring mantra here. And then that sort of died down in the last 10 years. It's resumed as their transportation issues have gotten even more intense. You know, most business people I know, you know, avoid going down to Atlanta unless they have to, just again, for the transit issues. Um, in the campaign, what I wanted to see was one of two possibilities. Because light rail and rail in general is so expensive, uh, my interest in it was to, to what extent could we bring in private sector partners to shoulder some of the uh, capital costs to do it and the operating costs to, to operate it. Beyond that, my interest was mostly in what can we do to create a real bus system here? Well, we don't really have a real bus system here, in my view. We have this hub and spoke system that is great for an extremely limited number of people. It's infrequent. And it doesn't go in very many places. It's inefficient. If you want to go around the periphery around town, you have to go downtown and transfer and come back out. And so it's largely irrelevant uh, to what we have. And so I believed back then, and I still do, that one of the best ways right now that we can address congestion issues and traffic is by creating a real world-class bus service. And this is something that we could have done in, in, within a year. We're talking about a transit proposal here that could take 10 or 15 years to unfold. Well, why would we do that? We could spend 10% of the money. We can get something, I think, 10 times as effective, and it'll all be here within probably 12 months. And so that's really what I had in mind two or three years ago during the campaign, and that's still largely where I am. So I found it to be interesting. I went back and looked at um, a Q&A with all seven candidates back in the primary, and Megan Berry at, at that time was quoted as her vision being develop transit solutions that are less costly than streetcars or light rail. And in your campaign, you advocated for a regional commute transit line with public-private partnerships as a solution. Right. Um, President Trump has, has touted so-called P3s, and they are a big part of his infrastructure bill. Can you put some meat on the bones for us? What would public-private partnerships look like in regards to mass transit? And I know you mentioned possibly using the CSX rail lines. Is that a reasonable possibility? I spoke with CSX back in the latter part of the mayoral campaign, and they were uniquely uninterested in partnering. Uh, 
it's been a long time since I've spoken with a company with less interest in the local community where they work. Um, but I spoke with her and, uh, she was not at all accommodating. She didn't rule it out. I subsequently talked to somebody else who knows trans- federal transportation law who said actually there might be a mechanism to take advantage of it. My thought back then was they have right-of-ways uh, in many areas. They're talking about CSX has right-of-ways in many areas where it'd be nice to have a parallel um, passenger rail. And uh, if if they would um, allow us to use the space or if they would operate it with us, then that might be a way to move forward and do it in a much more ch- uh, cheaper fashion than what we're talking about now. Um, but my comments were in advance of knowing if anybody does want to partner with us. I just said that's a good starting point for us. Um, you know, whether or not their organizations, private sector companies that would like to operate uh, a light rail system, we'd have to find out. I, I don't know how, how successful or how uh, prevalent you know, those sort of approaches are. Uh, but if we're going to do light rail, especially if we're going to do something with, you know, four or five corridors and with the price tag on it, I think we ought to fully examine how can we defray the cost and using a private sector partner would be the first place to look. Would you suggest using public-private partnerships for an improved bus system? I'd be very receptive to that. doesn't have to be, but I would. There's no reason to rule out the private sector on almost anything in my view. Um, you know, in education, um, I support charter school operators because I just don't think having a monopoly, whether it's a public or private sector, well serves consumers. And so in this case, there's no reason to go in with the assumption that you should have a government monopoly and say bus service. You know, until like 1973, uh, buses were mostly provided by private companies. And I think we got the Metro Transit Authority was established in 73 and the, and that's what happened around the, around the country. The private sector was kind of forced out in some cases because the private sector companies were operating unprofitably. Um, but I would be receptive to inviting private companies to help provide some service. And also, one thing along those lines is I was looking at something just in the last few days. There's a company called Via, which is operating the private sector van business that Arlington, Texas has contracted with. Uh, they were contemplating what to do with their bus line. That was their bus service was very unsuccessful, had very small ridership, and they contracted with a private company called Via to operate vans. And it operates like Uber. You just you know walk out, hail a place, and it's ride sharing. So you have multiple people in there, so it can take cars off the road, and it's a lot cheaper for the municipality than uh, than a bus service would be. Interestingly enough, Uber I think has rolled out a pilot for basically that same idea: vans. Right. And you can look out at uh, outside of Phoenix, the Google version, I think called Waymo, is doing something similar. They're already operating, in this case, autonomous uh, cars. And they expect in 2019, so this coming year, to operate autonomous ride-sharing vans on a commercial basis. Now, that's very early. Most people don't expect that sort of technology to have great effect for, you know, until 2025, 2030. But it just shows how quickly it's moving along. The next year, area outside of Phoenix is probably going to have a uh, ride-sharing autonomous van service. So, you know, again, that's a, that's another reason, in my view, why we should resist spending $9 billion over the next 10 or 15 years incurring all this debt when in the middle of a transportation revolution. You know, if we do a great bus service, you know, we can look at what Houston did. In 2015, 
Houston had the exact same bus service we did. It's the same sort of hub-and-spoke service that's largely irrelevant to most residents. And within a six-month period, they just flipped the switch and said, okay, let's get real, and they moved to a grid system. So you can actually move around the city wherever you want to go with good technology to make it possible. And they managed to stop a 20-year decline in bus ridership as soon as they did that. And you know, and so we could do the same thing. We, we, could, we could spend a little more money. We could acquire more uh, buses. We could pr- uh, partner with a private sector organization. And for many years, we could do a much better job moving people around than we'll ever do with light rail. And then if we get lucky and technology happens to evolve really quickly and people start using these uh, ride hailing services and shared rides and there's more efficiency on the road, well, then great. Then we will avoid it incurring you know billions of dollars of debt when we really didn't have to. As a quick note, if you're enjoying the Nashville Sounding Board, please leave a review or a rating on the Apple Podcasts app or your app of choice. In a recent interview with the Nashville Business Journal, transit advocate and himself a former candidate, Charles Robert Bone, said, quote, we're really being called to vote on a dedicated funding source. So it would be naive of us to think that this plan won't continue to evolve over the coming months and and years. Um, If there are parts of this plan that you don't like, why not? Uh, vote for the plan and work out the details later. Well, I sure hope nobody actually falls for that idea because as John Cooper, not the not the Metro Council member, but the attorney for Metro Council said three or four weeks ago, he said, no. He said, you're voting on a very specific referendum here. And if you read it, it's fairly lengthy and it designates exactly what we're going to have. He said, if you're going to significantly deviate from that, you're starting all over again. You're going to have to have a whole nother referendum. And that's one thing that's frankly pretty bothersome. I have seen repeatedly people who advocate the mayor's plan say, look, just vote for it and we'll figure it out later. If you don't like it, we'll figure it out. Well, that's wrong. It's factually wrong. It's legally wrong. And so I just get a little upset when somebody's arguing for uh, for their position when they start saying things that are inaccurate, and that's inaccurate. What do you make of the math published by the Chamber of Commerce that shows that this plan is only going to cost uh, the average taxpayer $0.17 cents per day or $5 a month? I've tried to understand it, and I've, I've looked at it, and I don't know that they've provided all the data to understand it. And first of all, one thing I did see, well, that's until the the property tax increase doubles to one cent. That, that's sales only the tax, first, yeah. yeah, the sales tax. That's only the first part of it for the first few years. And so presumably it, it doubles <laughs> a few years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't understand their math. I mean, the math that makes sense to me is this is a $9 billion plan. We have about 680,000 people live in Nashville. That's $16,000 per, per person. Family of four, it's about a $64,000 investment. How many families of four would say, yeah, I think this plan's worth about $64,000. I don't think any of them would do it. So that's the math I care about. And of course, that um, $8.95 billion over the entire construction period, so I guess about 14, 15 years, um, that includes one and a half billion dollars of federal money as well. So there are some other things that, that they're counting on, not just the sales tax stream. It does. And I think um, I think it's unlikely we get up the federal funding they're talking about, the grants they're talking about. And, and I think it's important to recognize that $9 billion figure is the right figure. There was a lot of debate about it. There's a lot of pushback on it. And I think the problem is the advocates of the mayor's plan seem to say, well, this is like buying a car, maybe buying a $30,000 car. So you need to go to the bank and you need to arrange for $30,000 of funding. But that's not what we're doing. This is more like starting a business. 
And so if you're starting a business, maybe you spend $30,000 to buy your equipment and to rent your building and to hire somebody, but you're not going to start a business with $30,000 because you're going to incur probably fifty to dollars $70,000 of losses you have to fund. So you're not going to talk about, well, I need to raise $30,000. If you do, you go out of business. Uh, you talk about, I need to raise $100,000. That's what people care about. What's the out-of-pocket cost? And so this is legitimate. This is like starting a business. It's a legitimate $9 billion expense we're talking about. So um, I think that's definitely the right number to be that people should have in mind. Plus the operating costs. Plus operating costs. That's another thing. I mean, that's what I, you know, so I spent a number of years on the school board and I think we need more funding for our public schools. That's just the way it is. I mean, teachers should be making greater incomes than we're making right now. And how do you do it if you're going to add $100 million a year to operating expenses? And I think it goes up to like $160 million a year in, in debt expense, you know, 15 years out. So that's a massive strain on a budget our size. Uh, and frankly, and that's ultimately the reason why I came out against this thing. Because again, there's these critical human problems we have in Nashville that require funding, that both capital up front and year-to-year funding. And if we're going to blow hundreds of millions of dollars on this plan, there's a lot of more important things that are not going to get funded, especially when the economy flattens out a little bit. Some of the assumptions here, they're assuming 4 or 5% annual increases in sales tax. Well, that's ridiculous. We've had flat sales tax for years now. I mean, we've had increase in property taxes, but our sales tax has been flat. And yet they build into the assumption that we're increasing 4 or 5% a year. That's just not right. Quick editorial note, David's assertion here was inaccurate. Nashville's sales tax revenue has increased by an average of 3% per year in the 10 years since fiscal year 2007, and it has increased by 6.5% annually in the last five years. While it's reasonable to debate the appropriate level of optimism involved in future revenue projections, I want to clarify that yes, in fact, Nashville's sales tax revenue has been increasing during our city's economic boom. So you've said that this amount of money could get our city in a lot of trouble. Nashville currently has about $4.2 billion in outstanding debt, and this plan calls for the issuance of $3 billion in revenue bonds. Um, What concerns you the most about adding that much debt to the city's balance sheet? Well, I mean, I just look at other cities. I mean, we have AA rating, and that's a nice rating, but it's less than other cities. There are other cities that have AA plus, have a AAA rating. You know, ours was downgraded about three or four years ago, and it's remained in that same spot. That affects our cost of funding. So I think we should be looking, what can we do to improve our debt situation, not what we can do to hamper it? And also keep in mind, we're at the peak of the economy right now. I mean, we should be at uh, generating the most amount of putting the most money amount as possible into our reserves. I think our debt situation should be uh, structured in a way that recognizes that we'll have some downturns. And that's that's one thing when uh, the finance director had warned last month that the budget for this upcoming fiscal year will need to be a little tighter. She cited four or five considerations, one of which is uh, a number of our reserve funds are at or below their targeted minimum. I mean, how do you do that? I mean, how is it possible in a blowing and going economy like this, when your reserve should be absolutely overflowing, they have instead fallen under the percent you would expect to maintain at a minimum. Um, so, you know, I think there's been a lack of fiscal discipline uh, in the city recently, and I don't think we need to exacerbate it by adding on debt, whether it's general obligation or revenue bonds. So do you think voters will approve the transit plan on May 1st? And are you more or less optimistic mm-hmm. in light of the recent revelations about the mayor? 
Well, it's the mayor's plan, and I think the proponents of the plan were banking on her goodwill and popularity to help push this thing through. But I think it's important to note, you know, she insisted and those the other proponents of it insisted that this vote happen on the lowest turnout election you could possibly schedule. This is a 10 or 11 percent turnout. It'll be, you know, a third or you know, 30, 40 percent of what you have in a mayor's election. And that's a lot lower than what you have in, say, a presidential election. So I think people ought to be aware that there's some reason the proponents of this plan want this to have the least democratic, you know, small d democratic participation as possible. And I think the fact that she has encountered all these problems and uh, been such a divisive figure of late is going to spill over into people's consideration of the plan. Um, Whether or not it passes, it's hard to say. I I think it's going to go down. I think people will figure out that we can do a lot better with a lot smaller amount of money if we're we're smart about it. Um, but I don't know. This whole the fact that it is on such a low turnout date makes it hard to know for sure how this is going to turn out. My view, though, is if if this were held in November, I think this proposal would go down hard. I think it would lose by a big margin. If the mayor's transit plan does not pass on May 1st, then what happens? Transit is clearly an issue that a lot of people care about, and it's safe to say that Nashvilleians don't want to wait another four years like we did after the AMP failed. Well, proponents are trying to use a scare tactic of saying, well, you know, if this fails, it could be eight or 10 years before we do it again. Well, that's not right, in my view. Unless, of course, you want another nine or $10 billion plan. Well, if, if people for some reason want to spend $10 billion, then maybe it does take that long. There's no reason to spend anything near that amount of money, in in my view. I mean, again, if we focus on uh, creating a bus service that will work great for a significant number of people and allow you to get around the city, you know, I don't really, the the state really would not have to be involved in that. You know, one of the issues is the state has to approve uh, increases in sales tax to fund transit plans. Well, perhaps that wouldn't be necessary under a a proposed, uh, under a bus proposal. So I don't buy it. I think people around Nashville are stoked to have a much better approach to transit. And politicians who think they're going to have to surround for four or five years are making a mistake. I think a smart elected official in the wake of the defeat of this proposal would seize the initiative, come out quickly and develop a better, cheaper proposal. And we'd be voting on it a year from now. So supporters of the transit plan have cast the vote as vote for Nashville's future. The mayor's administration has repeatedly said there is no plan B. We can't afford to wait, just like you said. Um, and in comes no tax for tracks, saying the plan would doom our, our future. There is a plan B, and we can't afford to wait. And I guess the plan B in your mind is just making a better bus service. That uh, That's what I would do. But, okay. but again, we have to play the hand we're dealt. The hand we're dealt is we have a binary choice up or down. Do we want to spend $9 billion on a plan that's not going to make much difference on congestion here? And so the first order of business is to get this thing out of the way so we can have the plan we should have. It's really not incumbent, on, in my view, on opponents to put forward a plan. It just so happens that most people I speak with believe, based on other cities, that we could develop a very good cost-effective bus service rapidly that would address our needs today and we wouldn't have to wait 10 years to have an improved transit program. But I think on any issue, it's easier to be the no camp than to put forward a positive proposal. And I think a lot of voters out there, they want something and there's one thing on the ballot. And to my knowledge, the opponents of this transit plan have not put forth 
a defined and spelled out plan B. And so we're being left to trust, no tax for tracks, we're being left to trust a Lee Beeman or a David Fox that once this plan fails, there will be a push for a plan B. Basically, why should voters believe you and not trust Mayor Barry? Well, they should believe their elected officials because the elected officials, once this plan is defeated, will come up with a new plan. Uh, I'll submit my opinion. I'm sure other people will submit their opinions. But I think the feedback from the result of this May election will be that this is far too expensive. It will incur too much debt and won't have enough of an effect on the transportation needs of people who live here. And so I think whoever happens to be mayor at the time and other elected officials can draw the right conclusion that people want something to happen more quickly, that'll be relevant to more people and cost a lot less. And um, they shouldn't depend on me. They shouldn't depend on any other you know, private sector advocate of uh, that we shoot this down and do something else. Just, you know, they ought to lend their voices, draw the right conclusions and have confidence that elected officials and hopefully whoever the mayor is will come forward with a better plan. Do you say that with a uh, sentiment that we will have a different mayor? Yes. Yeah, I, I think it's very unlikely that the current mayor will remain in office very long. That's as it should be. Uh, we need somebody who actually wants to do good things for people who need it, not somebody who is in it mostly to feed their own political career, which is what she's done for two and a half years. Speaking of political careers, do you have any intentions of running again for any office, mayor or otherwise? I have Since the 2015 election, I've had no intention of running again. I, as you know, I served around for the school board, did that, served as school board chair, ran in 2015. I'm looking at it now. You know, she's messed things up so badly so quickly that I guess if she were out, I would, I would have to think about running uh, because I don't want to have two clown acts in a row. You know, a lot of the wind has come out of the sails of our city just in the last few months over this ridiculous activity. This foolishness has been happening. And I want to make sure we have a good steward running it. And we'll, so we'll see who steps up. I'll think about it. It's not something I've been planning to do. But, you know, I've lived here all my life and I want to make sure we can navigate these issues pertaining to high growth in a, in a smart way and make sure that people who need good government services can get them and we can do it in a way that financially makes sense for us. So it's, it's not been on my to-do list, but if, it, if we suddenly have a premature opening in the mayor's office, then I'm, I'm sure I'll give it some thought. So back to transit, Charlotte and Denver. Um, interestingly, Denver is cited, I believe, both by proponents and opponents of light rail as an example for their case. But Charlotte and Denver are both cited by supporters of this transit plan as success stories for light rail. What do you think about Pure City examples and what would be an example of a transit success story for a city like Nashville? And Ben, that's ultimately why I've come out against the plan. I mean, if we could spend $9 billion and really transform our city in terms of the transportation capacity, well, I'd say we ought to consider doing it. But it's the underperformance of these light rail programs around the country that have caused me to say this would be a tremendous mistake. Like going back to Denver, they were, you know, 20 years ago, they were sort of in the same boat we were in. And the mayor was talking about doing it and saying, if we do it, hope we can get 20% ridership. Well, they're at 7% right now. And that's considered a fairly good. You know, the best one in America uh, would be arguably a Seattle. 
Um, people who've written it have said it's very helpful. People seem to like it there. And importantly, it's one of two. There's only been two out of the top 50 transit systems that have been gaining riderships in recent years, and Seattle is one of them. But I think the important thing to remember about Seattle, first of all, there's 9% of commuters are taking light rail, which is regarded as an enormous number. I mean, I think by any stretch of the imagination, we'd be at the small single-digit numbers if we did it. But the critical difference between us and Seattle is they have six times the population density of Nashville. And when you talk to experts on mass transit, the first thing they'll say is, okay, what's your residential population density? And then they'll ask, what's the concentration of businesses downtown if you have a downtown-focused service like this would be? And we are extraordinarily low on both and will be for a long time. So it's the fact that you have all these underperforming, you know, probably three dozen light rail and trolley systems that are underperforming. And then you have Seattle, which is actually doing a decent job. That's caused me to say, well, this is a bad bet for us. You know, uh, our, our residential density is far too low. And I think the odds, you know, do people really want to say will be like the one that seems to be having success or the 30 or so odd uh, that are having less success and losing ridership? As you mentioned, transit critics have cited Nashville's relative lack of population density as a key stumbling block for doing light rail here. Uh, But transit supporters have mentioned transit-oriented development TIF or tax increment financing as a way of increasing the density along those five light rail corridors. So a quick explanation of tax increment financing is that it allows bonds to be issued for development And then when the property becomes more valuable, the incremental increase in property tax revenue is used to pay back the debt. Will transit-oriented development TIF work well as part of this transit plan? Do you think that it could spur the kind of intense concentrated development that could get our population density up along those corridors? And who stands to gain the most from that TIF? And you're talking about the proposed plan? Correct. Uh, Yeah, I think TIF can can be helpful in that. yeah, I think we've overused TIF downtown. Uh, I think it made since 20, 25, 30 years ago when uh, Mayor Bredesen. Downtown Bredes- was blighted. Downtown was blighted. Mayor Bredesen understood we needed to do something unusual to jumpstart spending, and he did so. Had great effect. I think any use of it in the last five or six years has been pretty silly. I mean, you don't need to give an uh, artificial incentive to develop down there. If you do, you're being a chump. So I think we're sort of being chumps downtown. My view on TIF is it should be used sparingly, but it should be used where you actually need development. And so um, TIF can facilitate development as it should. It you know, lowers the cost of you know, doing a project like that. And so for those who are eager to have more density, I guess that would be a, a good thing. I think you have to, when you do it, you recognize you're also driving, oftentimes you're, you're going to be driving up residential co- living costs as well. That's another component of it. And you know, most people believe that housing affordability is one of the biggest challenges we have in Nashville. So I'm not sure providing TIF funding for transit-oriented development it was really going to help the housing affordability issue, but uh, it might modestly help the density issue if people think that's something that we need to be addressing. Now, just a quick defense of the transit-oriented development TIF plan. Um, I believe a, a fairly substantial portion of that would be directed towards affordable housing along those corridors. So I guess they are trying to to account for that affordability issue as well. And if they if enough of it were set aside for housing affordability, then that would be a, a more in our interest, I think, than than not. So to close out, 
Some of our listeners, no doubt, are stuck in Nashville traffic right now. And as a closing argument, can you tell them why we don't need this transit plan? Sure. Well, I believe everybody in Nashville is pro-transit. Everybody recognizes the status quo isn't getting the job done. But we need something to get the job done in the near future, not 10 years from now. And we need something that we can afford that won't be a burden to our children and, frankly, to our grandchildren. If you look at the performance of these light rail programs around the country, you can see they desperately underperform expectations. They tend to go over budget and they're too late. We can accomplish much, much more than we ever could with a rail-based program if we have a smart bus approach. We could do it for a small fraction of the cost. It would be relevant to far more people in our city, and we wouldn't be incurring all this debt so that if we get lucky and the transportation technology improves so that you have ride-sharing and autonomous cars and all these other things, which maybe that happens in the future, then we don't have all this antiquated technology we're paying for and our children are paying for. I'm very optimistic that we can uh, handle this and have a far better transit program here. But first, we need to vote against this proposal so we can have a far better approach put forward within the next year. Well, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and talking with me. This has been a lot of fun. And listeners, please stay tuned for part three of the series on transit. Thank you, Ben. My pleasure. Tell me we need more efficient transportation So they want to shove a light rail down our throats Well, it seems to me like a peddling solicitation Of the same old dog and pony show